Yeah. I'll react if I had to. Put some things in the past to and don't let them distract you, but react if you have to. Yeah. I'll react if I had to. Put some things in the past to and don't let them distract you, but react if you have to. Yeah. React if you have to. Yeah. Don't know the time, but just wait it on. Yeah, one of a kind. Yeah, what's on your mind? Yeah, what hard to find? Yeah, beautiful mind. Yeah, still in my prime. Yeah, just know that I'm here. What's up, guys? Um, Jeff, how you doing? Doing real. Blah, 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 blah. I'm doing great today, <laughs> there we Chris. Go. God, it's Friday. Yes, man, I'm super pumped for this uh, this episode. I um. I reached out to a, to a friend that I had met at a golf tournament, charity golf tournament, and stumbled upon the fact that it was his charity, and then stumbled onto the fact that he's a badass golfer, professional golfer. For, yeah, 12 years, technically still a professional right now. So, wow, so awesome. yeah, this is Celebrity City yeah. right now. I don't know about that. <laughs> and he's by far the most handsome man that's been on this program. <laughs> that's right. Um, no offense to Nick, the other he's man a handsome that was on guy. It, but he's 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 the one. If you guys are on watching us on YouTube, is the the skinny one that's uh, <laughs> the, the good looking man. It, it, me and Jeff are the other two guys. Mike Wellington, welcome, Chris. It's my pleasure. Well, I, I I'm like booming with gratitude, and this might be the first time I've been a little nervous. Yeah. I was, getting text from, I was getting texts from this guy. I hey. said, this is a big one. Um, mm. Let me tell you how this happened. I reached, we talked about your book, um, episode six or seven. Yeah. This will be 12, right, Jeff? This, I think so. Okay. Sounds think yeah, so. 12. Um, great. So episode six or seven, we talked about, I, I said, I met a guy that, that knew he was not feeling well um, when he like, declined some golf invitations or right. didn't want to go play golf because golf was his dna right and um so i reached out to him after that and i was like hey mike i kind of named i didn't say your name but i name dropped your story and i hope i got it right my bad is i hope it's okay and he's like what are you talking about shut the fuck up <laughs> he's like dude it's cool i mean that's what we're doing and I, i'm grateful so i wrote his name down on a list and said i got to get him on the podcast one day so, long story short, this week I reach out to him and I say, "Hey, Mike, I know we're not that big, but man, we we'd love to have you on to share your story." And he's like, "Actually, I'm living in Florida, but I'm in St. Louis, so we need to let's do it in the next two days." Right. And here we are. Pretty cool story. Yeah, the timing uh, couldn't have worked out better, especially since uh, I just learned that. The podcast was live. I started listening to a few of the episodes. I love the content. I think what you're doing is it's important, uh, and it's exactly what I've been doing for the last uh, six years since I started uh, Birdies for Bipolar and since my book came out at the beginning of mm -hmm. 2016. So, you know, I'm happy to uh, contribute in any way that I can for you. Well, well, I'm excited, and um, and we're going to get into some personal. Your personal story, when your personal battle um, with with bipolar disorder, correct? Mm -hmm. Of course. And um, just for those that don't know, this is his book. Which camera, Jeff? This one right here. 
um, birdies for or birdies, bogeys, and bipolar disorder, written by um, Mike Wellington, and it's a, a fascinating book. It's gut wrenching at times. I, I, me and my wife, I, I got it at the golf tournament, and gave it to her because she works in the mental health field, and we both are like, it's. There's times where just your heart, we our, our hearts break for you, and then there's times where like, man, this is the most inspiring shit I've ever read because of of the stuff that you've battled, and and I will say that. Um, before we jump into it, I I, I gotta have a, I gotta make a couple golf jokes. <laughs> Go for have it. Have you heard them all? Have you heard them all? Maybe. Like I played the other day, but the best two balls I hit was I stepped on a rake. You heard that one? <laughs> no. Really? That's no. my old man's. He no, would, that's all right. No. That's his best joke of all time. And then this one's a real story. I was uh, I was playing the other day, and our foursome was on the tee box, and everybody had hit their tee shot, and. Um, the fourth guy was going up to to strike the ball, and he stopped. And we looked to the left, though the road down alongside the fairway, there was a funeral procession. That so he stopped and he did a hail mary and a and an Our Father. And we were like, man. He, then he stepped up to the ball and before he teed off. We're like, that was that was really nice of you to do that. And he goes, well, it's the least I could do. I was married to her for thirty five years. <laughs> <laughs> I think I have heard one similar to that. Uh, is that good? That's good. Of uh, course, it's good. I, I certainly don't belong anywhere near a golf course when you're on it. Well, I am that's, so that's where bad. we met. Well, that's true, but fuck. I am so bad, and I play well, so much. It's hard. It's it's the hardest game in the world. They say it's uh, called golf because fuck was already taken. Yeah, I mean it is so so difficult when you're playing a lot, and it's so it's even more difficult when you're not playing very much at all. I mean, I'll be right. the first to tell you. What's your favorite uh, track here in St. Louis? Boy, that's a great question. Probably Old Warson. Really? Yeah, I mean, when you talk about a golf course that you can play over and over and never really get sick of it, I think Old Warson is right there. For me, I think that's number one. And then um, They wouldn't let me on that. I really like Fox Run down in Eureka. Wait a second. Is that back in the – I mean, you kind of go down the hill and it's – is it private? It's private. It's off uh, Highway W. Um, I've actually – played a charity a couple charity tournaments yeah. there it's beautiful it's wonderful it's quiet um golf course is just uh difficult but you know beautiful and not no houses or anything like that and um you know i think uh and i think the most underrated golf course in st louis is probably meadowbrook people don't really? realize how great meadowbrook is you know i think meadowbrook is uh a better golf course than bell reeve a better golf wow. course than uh, yeah i mean it's just it's it's supremely supreme excuse me supremely underrated so St. Louis has got lots of I great mean, golf courses, though. Being growing up on the Illinois side, um, I, mean, I grew up near Clinton Hills, which is closed now. I mean, easy. I mean, I guess for you, mm-hmm. um, but that course, and then you know when Stone Wolf and I remember they opened Stone Wolf, and that I used to work just, at Stone Wolf. Did you really? Yeah, An was... unfair course. There's some unfair holes for a guy. Like, <laughs> I, I mean, serious. I got to know it pretty well. I uh, was the director of instruction there in 2006 when maybe some of the most interesting things from my bipolar happened to me. You know, it, and and it's crazy because they say golf is so mental. Like it is. Gotta, I mean, I mean, right. And Jeff, you know, you play a lot of golf, yeah. don't you? I haven't played golf since high school. Okay. We had a course where I'm from, nine holes. Up in Calcutta. We played it twice. Not, nice. That's it. You <laughs> wear jean shorts and a, and a wife beater to yeah. that course, right? Yeah, of course. Yeah. They're all good. My old man used to take me when I was little to the little nine-hole courses in, uh, 
in Belleville, and um, that's how I learn. And you'd think I'd be better since I've been playing it long. I just, I'm just no fucking good, man. Well, you're not alone. Right. I usually play in the low 70s. It gets any warmer than that. I don't like to get out. You've heard I, that. I've heard that. All right, all right. Yeah, I've right. definitely heard that. So, so Mike, with uh, I, I really, I really want to jump in here, man. And and you know, we hit it on the, um, on the golf stuff. And and you mentioned something in your book that that you can live up until when the bipolar takes over you symptom free is that is that how it or you may not know their debilitating symptoms start at your younger years well i didn't know i was bipolar until i was uh, 23 years old and out of college so it it i had never in my life up to that point at 23 years old never felt depression ever because i was lucky that in my high school and college years, I was playing sports. You know, in high school, I was on the soccer team. I played basketball. I played golf in the spring. And I was just lucky to have uh, a pretty happy life. I didn't have anything traumatic, tra- traumatic, I should say, happen to me. Mm-hmm. So life was good. Then when I went to college uh, down in uh, Mobile, Alabama at Spring Hill College, uh, I played golf all four years, so my focus was there, and my focus was always on, all right, well, let's just keep trying to get better in college so we could turn professional after college and play professional golf. And so literally a month out of college, I had an episode, which um, for people that don't understand that, I slipped into uh, a mania. And when you're talking about bipolar, it has two major effects. It has the mania when you you aren't sleeping you go on weird spending sprees, your speech is accelerated, you know, everything seems to be moving a lot faster. Frankly, it's kind of like being on cocaine or being right. on speed, you know. And then the other flip side to bipolar disorder is is depression. And, and uh, up to that point in my life, I hadn't felt any depression. So I had my first episode a month out of college and um, my parents had to come get me from a hospital in Florida. And when they brought me back to St. Louis, then that's my body and my mind kind of went from that mania of everything moving really fast. And I slid all the way down the ladder into my first depression. And each day when I, when my parents brought me back to St. Louis, I had to force myself to roll out of bed. I had to force myself. I began by walking around our neighborhood. Eventually I was jogging around our neighborhood. And then finally I was running around our neighborhood just to kind of get uh, some endorphins going and kind of mm-hmm. fight my way out of the depression. And ever since then, and I've learned a lot and have a lot, I've had a lot more things happen to me with both ends of it, both the mania and the depression. But that was kind of my introduction to it at 23 years old. Wow. And I'm 42 now. Okay. You don't look it. <laughs> well, thanks. You got it. Right. I'm not hitting on you. I'm just saying you don't look it. <laughs> That's good. That's good to know. <laughs> you know, can you, is it fair to say that when you have these mania, um, that sometimes you hear it as manic. That's exactly what it yeah. is. Yes. Is it fair to say that you can't have that without coming down and having the correct? So my doctor has taught me this. I've learned it from my own experience. When you have a manic episode or you go through streaks of mania, mm-hmm. eventually your brain will kind of slowly move down to kind of a middle ground and then it'll go all the way down to the bottom and you'll be depressed suicidal depression (laughs) and then you've got to make up your mind to kind of dig your way out of it and for me to to dig my way out of it it was always exercise you know being a guy that played sports growing up uh, exercise was something that I always did and so I learned that when I would have an episode I would 
need to use exercise to my advantage. And over the years, I've learned a lot of new tricks and techniques that have helped me, uh, you know, climb up that ladder from the deep depression to kind of a middle ground. Uh, but the, the thing, the problem I had, or the biggest issue I had with bipolar was that every time I would slip into a mania, I, it was a blind spot for me. I couldn't tell I was manic. So I would ah, have, I would have friends and family notice it and point it out. And they would, some of them would just tell me flat out, like you're manic right now. So you need to be careful. And, and, um, one of the other issues with it is it's very intoxicating. Like it feels, it's like a buzz. It's like, yeah. you know, taking, um, taking a pill of ecstasy sure. or do it, getting that cocaine high or whatever you want to call it. So and you, both. yeah, you don't, you don't sleep at all. So you, you just feel so good. You actually, you feel like you're getting a lot accomplished when in reality, because the blind spot is there with the mania, you're not getting anything done. How long do those highs last? Those mania? For me, the longest, mania situation i've had was probably you know three weeks to a month holy shit wow yeah i mean and if you don't if you don't crash or if somebody doesn't get their message out to you that you're in that state it can go on wow and the lows same uh yeah the lows can the lows can even go potentially longer um but you have to you know one of the things i've learned is you just have to do uh, a lot of different things to pull yourself out of the low of depression. I mean, you have to certainly, as I mentioned, exercise. You got to hydrate at a high level. You got to get the right amount of sleep. Not only the right amount, but quality sleep. You know, yeah. mm-hmm. you can use uh, things like cryotherapy, music therapy, um, eat and drink probiotic foods, take probiotic pills. There's a lot of different um, avenues these days to fight depression, and I've I've searched for a lot of them because. You know, if you've ever felt that or any of your listeners have ever felt that, it's an awful feeling and you want to try to, uh, to like I said, climb that ladder out of the depression and try to get to that middle ground um, as quickly as you can. But sometimes, yeah, to, to your point, it just takes a little bit of time. Wow, yeah. Cool. I, I can see, too, I mean, how I've had bouts of depression, uh, not to this level or diagnosis, absolutely, but how I always say and the getting out of bed like you mentioned the the getting in the shower to start your work day or your weekend day whatever mm-hmm. is the hardest they're insurmountable tasks but you have to do them and despite it and to be mindful of that but i can see how at the beginning of of folks that maybe don't talk about it or aren't seeking help they it's got to be the scariest feeling you may want to quit you don't want to fight this anymore and it's just brutal man it it and then it, it what i've experienced is it it makes people with i don't know what you call it but depression not bipolar because i think i don't know enough about bipolar disorder um but with depression they start jumping the fucking booze or pills or whatever to try to medication uh-huh mm. and i see that i've seen that personally with with some friends that, that suffer from bipolar and some people I know where, and this is what I want to want to ask you about. They, some of the meds or the wrong meds will make them feel not like themselves. And it's hard for them to continue on that. Um, do you hear that often? Well, I hear it and I've been in that boat, yeah, yeah, but- you know, I mean, when you're trying to put together the correct recipe to battle bipolar, 
Uh, and, and frankly, just so you know, depression yeah. is part of bipolar. So when you talk about depression, that's you're talking about it. Okay. Um, but yeah, I mean, I've tried a lot of different medications over the years. I'll give you a couple of examples. I uh, in 2005. I remember I was living not very far from here, where we are today. I was living in Maplewood down yeah. by that steak and shake. And I went into my doctor, and I just, I'd been taking lithium for a long time. And I just kind of wanted to try something different, just for the sake of trying something different. And I tried this drug called Depakote. And he said, okay, you can try this drug, but you got to make sure you take it with food. So I tried this drug, and literally, uh, for five straight days, I would, I'd, have like, I'd have a big meal with it, whether it was a breakfast or a lunch. And every single time it made me vomit. So I went back in after five days and I said, doc, this is not, this isn't working. He said, really? And I said, yeah, I keep throwing up every time. And I go, it's not because of the food. I said, the food's okay. And so he whips out the medical journal and sure enough, 10% of people that use Depakote had induced vomiting. Are you, 10% a big number. Yeah. So obviously we... We went away from that because I couldn't do it any longer. Right. I, I mean, I can, up, I can remember during that during that five day stretch, I can remember pulling into my grandma. I, I was about to throw up again, and I pulled into my grandma's driveway. And this is actually, I think, is in the book the story. Mm-hmm. And I threw up. I opened the car door, threw up all over the driveway, closed the car, and then went uh, a little bit further down the street and went to Westboro, where I grew up playing golf and played around a golf. And I think I played pretty well, <laughs> but. But it just, you know, when you're, like I said, when you're trying to put together the recipe, you know, it's not just the medication that you need to, you know, have as part of that recipe. Mm-hmm. It's, it's a lot of different things. It's, um, like I said, how are you, what, what are you doing for your sleep? You know, are you sleeping in a good environment? Are sure. you sleeping? You don't want to have a television on when you're trying to sleep because your brain will never get that REM sleep. It'll never turn off, mm-hmm. you know. Uh, what kind of, you know, are you using music to your advantage, you know, for music therapy? What kind of, are you eating well? Uh, are you drinking a t- enough water? I mean, I try to drink as much water as possible. Uh, really? I mean, oh, yeah. Every single day I'm trying to drink because w- what, is, what causes depression? Fatigue. What causes fatigue? Dehydration. All right. All so, right. I mean, I, I am constantly, like, you guys saw me when I came in here, uh-huh. I had a bottle of water with yeah, me. Yeah. And I have another one in the car because I stopped at Walgreens right here before I came in here because I just worked out and I want to make sure that I'm hydrated for the mm-hmm. rest of the day and I'm, I'm going to get even more water. But these are things that I never knew like just from a regular health standpoint and then when i figured out that i had bipolar and needed to kind of ramp up everything um but my meds you know I, i've actually i've taken a bunch of different ones i tried that depakote that didn't work uh i tried a drug called lamotrigine for a little while which is also used with people that take uh, epilepsy and uh, that was pretty successful actually but my the best drug that i've used for bipolar has been lithium uh, it's a natural salt that metabolizes rather easily in the body. Oh wow! Okay. And it didn't. It never really affected my golf uh, when I was playing competitively. It, uh, I was kind of able to to play at the same or maybe even a little better level. And but that's one of the things. No matter what, no matter what mental illness you have, mm-hmm. whether it's anxiety, right, um, depression, bipolar, schizophrenia, whatever, you need to figure out what medication works best for you. I'm glad you said that. We on when Jeff and I kind of the episode we talked about the the book briefly. We're trying to tell people, hey, it, there's things out there that help. Um, I battle anxiety and depression. I mean, mostly anxiety. Um, Jeff had mentioned he he has battles of depression and um, anxiety, and 
there are people like we mentioned that don't even know that you can go to your primary care physician, uh, PCP, your doctor, mm-hmm. and, and begin the conversations. And once you take – a lot of times you'll get prescribed – I think for me, like I, they started with Wellbutrin, and it didn't do anything for me. And then maybe Prozac, and I still – but I and I'm I'm grateful to my mother for this because she's a nurse and she really stuck with me and she was like you gotta keep trying until just it, you gotta hang in there. Great advice. Yeah, and it's and those are all little battles that you win against this shit and that you can really at the start building some fucking pride, man. Because when you whether it's just getting out of bed, check that off the list. Like that's that's a, you won that yeah. battle today. If you take a shower, you won that battle today. And then making your bed. How long? Is the exact, no, I'm oh, serious. Yeah. It's exactly. actually right. like a good step to start the day. Right. Yeah, I, I agree with that. My 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 <laughs> old man said it was a sign of an unsuccessful person when he doesn't make their make his bed. And I can hear him saying that when you said that. That's why I chuckled. It's fun. Um, I'm glad you brought up your medication because I think a lot of people. I think that's a stigma. Taking medication for a mental illness for some reason, uh, people are afraid to admit they do that. Yeah. And the other thing a lot of people do once once the medication is successful, they think they're better and can stop taking it. Oh, well, that's okay. So I'm gonna have to share this now because yeah. that's a great point you bring up, and I'm glad that you did. So when I first was diagnosed with bipolar in January of 2001. I was the same way. I had had all this success in college as a golfer. And when I was in college, I didn't know I had bipolar disorder. And so therefore, I wasn't taking any meds. So the biggest struggle I had after I was diagnosed was the fight in my brain was like, well, you know what? I was a really good player in college. I was an All-American. I was able to shoot low scores. I don't need medication. I didn't need it then. Why would I need it now? So I lied to my parents after I was diagnosed. And I said, oh... I'll take this, I'll take these meds. And I frankly didn't, I was not consistent with taking the meds every single day until uh, 2006. So for five years, uh, I, I struggled. I mean, there was days when I did take it and I took the right amount. There was other days when I took half the dosage I was supposed to take. There was other days when I just flat out skipped it. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the thing I learned most is that had I taken the medicine the correct way from the very beginning, I probably would have had better success in every facet of my life. But because of, you know, my ego uh, getting in mm-hmm. the way saying, you didn't need that when you were in school. Why, why should you have to take it now? You don't, you don't need that. You know, you don't need medication. But in reality, uh, I did and I still do to this day. And I keep a, a gratitude journal. And usually about every Every fifth or sixth day, when I when I write in my gratitude journal, I write that I'm very I'm grateful for my medication. And the reason I do that is because hmm. if I didn't have my medication, I'd be locked in a hospital forever. Right? Like yeah. there's no there's no question in my mind. Like every time I had a problem in an episode, a lot of it in that book, mm-hmm. the one common denominator was that I wasn't taking my meds. Wow. And then to your point, it's weird. Like you know the the. Uh, the comparison I always make it is to like a, when a pitcher has a no hitter gone, mm. you don't say anything, right? You just let them keep going, right? right well, the yeah. same thing with these meds, with these mental illnesses. If things are going well and you're taking your meds every day, 
why would you switch anything? Huh. But, yeah. but it tricks us right. yeah. into thinking, oh, well, I'm good now. Yeah. Well, well, the reason you're good is because <laughs> yeah. you took it every day and you got some consistency That's in your right. life. And it's the biggest trick that mental illness does to people that have what I have. And I'm sure, I'm sure there's some other uh, conditions that people, that, that situation is similar. But I'm, I'm glad you brought that up because it, it really is um, – the, the most difficult thing to understand why someone would go away from something that's brought them success. Yeah. Right. It's working. It's bizarre. Yeah. And, like, I, and I'm just as guilty of it, mm-hmm. you know, half a dozen times in my life as anybody else. Mm-hmm. I, smaller scale, playing junior in college hockey, I was a Bauer guy, uh, skates. And sure. I for some reason thought it looked hot dog if I switched to graphs and ever since when as soon as I switched those skates I didn't want to switch back but I mean I couldn't it was a major fucking difference um so I just yeah I just wanted it I I get it and it, it why do some why change something right if, if it's it, working yeah. if it's working yeah and and like like for example when I was playing competitive golf uh-huh. if I had a five or six hole stretch where I made you know three or four birdies I would always keep that ball going, right? Right. Unless, right. unless the ball was like really damaged, and I need to get a new ball. But you know, why? To your point, you know, with the skates, like, why would you change something that's working? And that's I don't know. That's kind of the biggest mind fuck that happens with uh, just life in general. A lot yeah. of different things, yeah. sure. But when it comes to your health, and I had to learn this the hard way, man. I mean, I learned it. Uh, I would have that stretch where I would go on my meds for five weeks and I'd be great. I'd be healthy. I'd be productive. And then I would be like, oh, I don't need these. Yeah. I'm good. That, I'm, br- I'm glad you brought yeah, that up because uh-huh. that's a big thing in the mental health community, realizing that that is out there and it's fooling people. Yeah, for sure. That story, your first episode where you ended up in the hospital in Florida and mm-hmm. you said something that your dad had to fucking negotiate like with the best of them to get you oh, yeah. out like that. Right. I mean, I was scared for you reading that shit. Yeah, luckily my dad is a uh, born salesman. He's still a salesman to this day, and he came down there and got me out. And, you know, I've always been somebody you – know, I was a broadcast journalism major in college. I've, really? done, I've done some radio stuff. I okay, love doing yeah. this kind of stuff. That's how I, I kind of met you. Yeah, yeah, I've always been able to talk, right? But my dad said when he got to me in that hospital, they had me so drugged up that I couldn't really speak. Oh, yeah, yeah. And he said, I can remember sitting across the table from, ironically, I don't know if you guys remember this, it was the same weekend that Dale Earnhardt died. I rem- yeah, I'm yeah. A, I'll never forget okay. that day. It was, I didn't know that until after, okay. but it was that same February, weekend. Uh, February of 2001. Yeah. So when my dad came, I remember him sitting across the table from me, and I thought I was speaking perfect mm. English, right? But he told me later, he said, well, when, I, when I came and picked you up in sarasota he said i didn't think you'd ever speak again and then uh you know really hard for him i mean yeah it had to be it had had to be be difficult because that came yeah because that came out of nowhere you know Mm, i mean we didn't we knew i had bipolar at that point but certainly had never you know i have what you would call an acute case of bipolar where other people certainly have a, a more mild case both are something you need to take uh very close care of but uh yeah it was to to be honest with you that was tough and then the biggest uh, I guess retribution or comeback for me was, you know, that summer uh, I came back to St. Louis. They brought me back around that time, the end of February, and uh, I ended up winning um, the St. Louis District Amateur Golf Championship. And my it was a tournament that I started going to and caddying for my dad in okay, when I was yeah, ten yeah. years old. So 
that was a big uh, thing for us, for, for he and I as, as uh, father and son, you know, for me to, to have all that trouble uh, with my health and then to come back and win that tournament. And we've got a picture in our house That's of he scene. and I. Yeah, he and I hugging afterwards. Wow. To me, that was um, that was really cool because it was it was a, I was able to kind of uh, put that all behind me. And ironically, you'll love this on the li- the final day of that tournament. It's a match play situation. Right. It was a thirty six hole match. I had forgotten that morning to take my medication. Oh no! No shit. Yeah, but I texted my dad before we teed off, and he brought my meds to the course, and I actually took them behind like the sixth green i want to say in the, in the morning round um and you know that was just you know the, the thing about uh, mental illness is you can have a lot of hiccups and a lot of issues but if you're willing to do the work you can have things like that happen but you really have to be able to take it one day at a time and really be focused on all the little things like what do i need to put in my body to make me um, healthy, you know, whether that's meds or do I need to keep alcohol out or do I mm-hmm. need to, um, you know, what, I, got, I have to have a lot of water. I, you know, all the little things kind of add up for, for consistency. And, and it, that's the thing. If you have a mental illness, you can still live a productive life yeah. and, and be a good member of society. But Absolutely. you just have to do a little bit more work, you know. And that's your movie scene, too. That's a movie scene that went in that tournament with your with your oh yeah i mean that's like that's yeah that was cool i mean that was something that i'll always remember and uh it was uh it was a good moment for us because we the first part of that year was ugly ah and it's you guys gotta you gotta read this book it it's it might gets real detailed and we'll we'll get some stories out of them before Mm -hmm. we let them out of here today but one thing about the bipolar disorder bipolar disorder is this was all in 2001, so it's it's 20 years almost, yeah. um, not to age you, but you did reveal your age. So, <laughs> But the point is, is a lot of people to the, today in 2020 don't know what the fuck bipolar disorder is. Mm-hmm. They hear about it. They use it as a, as a punchline, as a yeah. joke totally. to people. I had it happen recently with a girl I was uh, taking out. <laughs> what what happened? you so got to tell us. This, is, this is pretty good. So I met, I met this girl down in Florida, and uh, you, know, you know when you meet somebody and you go on a date, you... Uh, you talk about your exes. Oh, and so she started telling me about this guy she dated. Uh-oh. I could see And, and of course, she says, well, I think he was bipolar. <laughs> uh, she doesn't know. She has no idea right. that I am. And I said, oh, yeah, well, tell me more about that. Like, what, what was – she's like, well, you know, he was just uh, – he was, like, getting – he would beg me to stay, and he didn't want me to go, and he would get on the floor and cry. And I said, that's not bipolar. <laughs> hey, let me said, tell you. I said, that's not bipolar. And, uh, but but your, your point your, – to prove your point is – uh, people do use it as a punchline, and they don't know really what they're talking no about because they don't know what the condition really means. Yeah, they no they think they, it means crazy, which to a certain extent is kind of true. I mean, certainly when you're not healthy and you have bipolar, you're capable of crazy behavior. Sure, There's sure, no question right. about that. I'll be the first Erratic, to tell you that. Yeah. But you know, a lot of people speak out of school about it, and they really don't know what they're talking about, mm-hmm. which is fine. I don't. That's cool. You know, but I, when it comes down to the reality of it. Not a lot of people know precisely what exactly they're talking about. It, it, it can be the gravest illness, an illness of our mind, of our brain, because if we have a heart problem, we have another organ problem, our brain tells us to fix it. Mm-hmm. When we go fix it, we, yeah. we'll seek help from a doctor. But when our brain, that's our brain 
it, you know what I mean? Like that's fucked up. Of course, up. that's mm-hmm. so crazy. And the point about the twenty years thing is like back in two thousand one, Mike, when you had this, when your when your father came to pick you up uh, in a in a hospital ward, mm-hmm. what did people know about bipolar then? If they don't know shit about it now, it, it certainly had to be, certainly not as much. Right? I, I didn't know. I mean, all I knew was. When I got diagnosed, I got diagnosed in Florida, and a doctor gave me uh, an eight and a half by eleven piece of paper with all the traits of a bipolar person listed. And you know, for me, the lucky thing for me is when I read all these traits, I'm like, well, I've got that. Really? I've got that? Oh yeah. <laughs> Check. So I was Check. never. Many people that have bipolar are always in denial, but I was. Luckily, I was well educated in high school and college, and I thought, you know, and and I think golf also teaches you. You know, it's a it's a sport where you call penalties on yourself and you're honest. Mm-hmm. And when I saw that list of sure. traits, I was like, you know what? <laughs> that this is right. Like yeah. I definitely have this. But like I was saying earlier, my biggest challenge wasn't that I was in denial of having it. My biggest challenge was I needed to take meds every day to handle it. Sure. I mean, what I hear in that in this this mental health battle is that you you have to and it sounds bad when you call somebody this in a fight like you call them a fucking know-it-all but we are all the time know-it-alls we don't for some reason ever want to and i don't it's not just a guy thing there's women do this too like oh yeah they don't i'm not gonna get help i know it all i'm gonna i don't need this medication because i know better like Mm -hmm. what when do we make the the switch and and we kid around a lot that you know teenagers and 20 year olds think they are fucking know-it-alls ask them at just ask them right that's kind of the joke but and this was your early 20s that, well and and i was a know-it-all right i thought that i didn't need meds yeah right? i thought that i didn't need sleep i thought that i could sleep in a room where the television was on all night i thought i could do all these things and i had to learn the hard way that yeah. I didn't know shit. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. And, and you know, luckily, one of the things I've been able to do since my book came out and since we started Birdies for Bipolar is I'll get phone calls and emails from people I've never met who are seeking advice about how to handle this because maybe they have it. Maybe their son has it. Maybe their wife has it. Maybe their stepdaughter has it. And I'll have long phone calls, and I just try to share what I've learned about it because – it's if you don't learn or if you don't share that kind of information, these people are never going to make any progress. Right. And I, um, I, I just, I, because of the things that happened to me and the things I saw with my own two eyes, my know-it-all stuff, my know-it-all attitude, mm-hmm. it's, it's slowly slipped into, okay, well we need to be aware. Right. Instead of knowing the answers and this works because different things work for different people. And I just kind of shifted from a place of I know what I can do to fix me to I just need to be aware I have the, uh, that I have this and be aware of the things that work to help me be healthy and be productive. Because uh-huh. when you're not, when, you, when that depression gets you and it sucks you in, like your life, uh, you aren't productive. You don't get anything done. You don't want to get out of bed. And then if the mania grabs it, grabs you, you are all over the place, and yeah. it, it sets you back months of, of, at a time for progress in your life. That is, it, when you said earlier that I, I thought you were going to say it, you know a day or two, and right. then you said that's what I thought too. Three to four weeks, that you can be on a manic episode, right? That's crazy. I have been. I mean, yeah. I can I can remember being in this neighborhood that we're sitting in, being manic and 
going to uh, I was in Cusimano's bar yeah, right yeah. here, mm-hmm. and Steak and Shake, and my apartment with my roommate was right over here, and uh, I can remember vividly in 2005, just literally, I would go out with the girl I was dating until, you know, four or five in the morning. I would come home and I would kind of fake sleep. Uh-huh. I would lay down in the bed, but then the alarm would go off at six or six thirty, and I had to drive over to Stonewolf because yeah, right, I was working right, at Stonewolf. Right. Or right. at the time, I was doing two jobs at that time. I was the director of instruction at Stonewolf, but I was also calling baseball games at the University of Missouri. So really, oh yeah. Okay, so then cool. I would have to either drive to Fairview. During the week, yeah, and yeah, then yeah. on the weekend, we always had three-game series at Mizzou sure. in Columbia. So I would then have to drive to Columbia, which is an hour and a half. And so, most of the time, well, I guess half the time we were in Columbia for the games, but sometimes we'd have to go out of town. Inside the at the time was the Big Twelve Conference, right? So I was traveling with the team. So you would travel. You would even call the games on the road. Oh yeah, Texas. Yeah, but so my life was really fast-paced anyway. And then. Towards the end of that season, that baseball season, which would have been like May of 2006, uh, I, I stopped taking my meds because right. things had been going well. You're fixed. Mm-hmm. Right. And I started drinking more often. I was just going to ask you and that. that. And that I had a horrible episode uh, at, in 2006 where I ended up doing 55 games for the Missouri baseball team. We had Max Scherzer. We were, oh, yeah, we were really, yeah. really good, and we, we made it into the regional for the College World Series regional. But I got, I had an episode, and I had to go uh, stay in the hospital, and therefore I missed going to the regional with the baseball team. They went to Malibu, California, and I had to miss it because That's... I was not healthy. So was out, of, out of all the things that have been taken away because of my, my, excuse me, my bipolar that's one that really still irritates me. Because yeah, this was a great group of guys that obviously Scherzer was a superstar, but a great group of other guys too. Max is a super guy. and um, I wish he would have, we would have thrown a truckload of cash. Yeah, it would have been nice man. to get him here. God. But, but he, he's a great guy, and all those guys that he's friends with from that team, they were great kids too. And to, to, miss, to go with them for 55 games and then miss the most important games because I had to be in Barnes Hospital – yeah, that's yeah, a, that was that's very a, frustrating. That's a eye opener. Yeah, I would say and and it was all from not. I mean, certainly I shouldn't have been drinking the way I was, but it really the main issue was I wasn't taking my medication. So the, you had you were fixed. Yeah, why did you need it anymore? Mm-hmm. Look, that, one of the coolest opportunities in my life got taken away because of my own ego of I don't need the medication. I can mm-hmm. do it without the medication. And the reality is I can't. You know, the important thing for people listening is that we get it. Like it's not we're not knocking you if you are you in the you're in the moment where you're not going to ask for help and mm-hmm. you can figure this shit out on your own. Mike's been there. Like over and over. And and we're just trying to say it when you when you're ready to ask for help, it it, it the burden of knowing everything is a, is a heavy burden to carry. Like <laughs> life is a lot yeah. easier and anything, being able to ask for help on things. Yeah, and, and to your point, I'd like to say this. I don't think I've ever even said this at any interview I've ever done, but one of the most important things for people living with a mental illness to understand is that when your support system does come and try to help you, because I know, like I told you, my bipolar mania was a blind spot. I couldn't tell I was like that. Right. right. Mm, yep. So I would have friends, you know, I had an army of friends who were trying to help me. I had a friend who, down at the corner of 141 and um, 44, tackled me. He, tack- <laughs> he tackled me on the ground. 
uh, so he could get me in his car and get me to Barnes Hospital because he knew I wasn't right. But, but my point in telling you that or bringing this up is yeah. that if you live with a mental illness, don't hold it against the people of your support system that are trying to help you because your thoughts are not clear. Your thoughts are unhealthy. And these other people, they're just trying to help you. Don't hold it against them that they're trying to help you. You have to, you have to have like a kind of a subconscious knowing that, Hey, I don't, I might not want to go to a hospital or I might not want to go to a treatment facility, but these people truly do care about me and they love me. And you have to be able to listen to them. And luckily because I have strong friendships I had that that underlying subconscious belief in those people. Like when that guy, when my buddy tackled yeah. me, number one, he would have broken me in two anyway because he's right. just that kind of guy. All he like right, takes yeah. kickboxing classes for All fun. Right. <laughs> but I also knew, like in my mind, Everybody I was like, okay, needs a friend like that. A close friend of mine is tackling me on the cement to get me to get in his car so I can go to the hospital. Like I need to realize that that he's doing that for a reason. He wouldn't normally do that if I was okay. But and it goes. I think it goes. Big time with people that are going into treatment. It does. For I, alcohol or drugs or whatever. I have, um, I was going to say, as you were telling that story, there's been times where I've coached somebody kind of going into an intervention. <clears throat> Excuse me. And one thing I always tell these folks is that when you sit down with the, the XYZ addict, whatever they're using, their first intention is going to be hateful they're going to be defensive they're going to throw up everything in the book to just try to deflect what's happening to them they're going to bring up the old shit i mean it could be your best friend that you guys used to you know do whatever with and do whoever with and he's going to bring all that shit up in front of you in front of your wife he's going to they're going to do that and what i coach if you for lack of better term folks that are staging this loved ones of an addict um that you have to just Stay focused and say that is your addiction talking. Um, I love you. If you wanted to address that, let's get you into recovery, and then we can address that afterwards. And you almost have to repeat that like a record because they're going to do whatever they can to get you to go away. They're going to go low. Mm. They're going to go high. They're going to go, you know, cut you out at the knees. They're going to do whatever they can. And what what I'm hearing here is I bet those people that it's love, they love us. And I can imagine that's, and for people that are listening, that have probably, because it doesn't just start with some big-ass intervention. There's always a couple people here and there that try to have the conversations with, and if you've had those conversations, if people have tried to talk to you about that and you've gotten real fucking pissy about it, that's a, that's a light, man. That's a, that's a light bulb mm-hmm. that needs to go off, because it, you don't have to be on, on the television show intervention. You don't have to get tackled into a fucking highway by your by your one of your best friends. It, if you get there, uh, it's because you ignored some warning signs, I I think. No, no, I, I agree with you. And I had a friend of mine in Chicago one time explain it really well. You know, there's two issues that, that come along with mental illness and um, addiction, and it's uh, accountability mm-hmm. and, and ego. Mm-hmm. Like your ego, and I know for me, bipolar is all ego. Like when your ego, when, you're bi- when my bipolar gets out of control, like – my cocky ego takes over and you think that you're the best at everything in the history of the world and you're really not. Mm-hmm. And my buddy in Chicago would always say, you know, it's a shame that more people don't 
point the thumb at themselves instead of pointing the finger at, at other people. Because mm-hmm. yeah. I, like I think a lot of people, especially when it comes to, I know some of the situations I've dealt with, but then also learning and seeing people getting ready to go into treatment, th- those people, myself included at times, you're kind of pointing the finger at everybody else saying, you know, you don't know what you're talking about. I don't need you. Instead of pointing the thumb at yourself saying, okay, I need to do this and I need to make some changes and I need to make a shift and hold myself accountable. Mm -hmm. But it's hard to do that. It's hard to hold yourself accountable when the ego is on the loose. Sure. And and bipolar in my situation is the biggest ego enhanced condition in the world. It really, Really? it's all, it's all ego. Yeah. That's, that's, it's a hundred percent ego. Like when you're mania, when you're, when you're manic, when you're living in the mania, when you're not, when you're depressed, but when you're manic and you just think you can take on the world, there's this level of invincibility that is unprecedented. Like you literally don't think you need sleep. <laughs> oh, wow. Yeah, it's just what and, and it, then it compounds and it makes you feel uh, like a buzz. Like it's you know um, fucking four month coke binge. Yeah, that's it crazy. really is. It's kind of like that. It's unfortunate, but that's kind of the way it is. And until you tame that, you're going to struggle. What? Um and I want—I think you've probably nailed some of them, but what? Talk about your your fourteen clubs philosophy. Yeah, so I came up. The reason I came up with the fourteen clubs in my book is because uh, when you play a, a competitive golf tournament, amateur tournament, or professional tournament, you're allowed fourteen clubs to compete with. No more. You can use less if you want, but no more than fourteen clubs. Yeah. You know, what about the foot ca- the foot wedge? Is Do you that, have one uh, of those? I, that's my best club. <laughs> my best club. Uh, but I, when I wrote the story in the book, I, I felt like. The story will certainly get your attention, but I wanted to put something in there to help people fight and help right. help people um, to have something that they could lean on. And so I came up with these 14 different things that basically most of them are to fight depression. I mean, certainly uh, there may be a couple things in there that would help you fight mania, but depression, I think, we talked about this the other day on the yeah, phone, yeah. depression is the biggest thing that everyone is fighting in the probably in the world today because depression can come from a mental illness depression can come from a divorce depression can come from a a death in the family depression can come from when you lose a job Mm -hmm. maybe uh you know when you uh when you're not getting along with your kid or getting along with your parents uh you know depression can come in so many different ways so a lot of my 14 clubs were just little things you could do Every single day, if you chose to, you don't have to do all 14 of them, but you could do two or three of them in a day. And, you know, I think hydration is in there, water's in right. there, drinking a lot of water's in there. Certainly, I'm a person that believes in medication. Some people, you know, I'm not going to sit here and act like there aren't people out there living with bipolar or other mental illnesses that aren't living a productive life by taking meds. But for me, I was medication is something that I've come to believe in just because of all my situations that have happened. Without meds, you know, I would always wind up in odd scenarios. So, <laughs> I mean, it's it, a pretty it, fucking easy formula. Yeah, right? to me, to me, it was easy. But I do think there's some holistic ways around it. But uh, and then there's you know a lot of other music therapy, like I've mentioned a couple times today, is certainly a big one. You know, to me, music therapy is awesome because if you have a great song or a great band you like to listen to that literally can make the hair on the back of your neck stand up, like that's pretty powerful stuff. It. I mean, why do you it? Why do you think people go to the gym listening to their music that jacks them up? Yeah. Or, fuck, even in 
you know, I, I remember kids in high school and they wanted to go meet at the park and fight. They'd roll up listening to their fucking sure, Slipknot yeah. or whatever, get them yeah. fired up. I mean, it, 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 it re- there's songs out there that, that I've heard at funerals or that are, you know, that'll mean a lot to you and they'll, they'll, they'll fucking hurt in the heart to well, hear. It's a big part. I mean, you're a musician. I work, yeah. I'm a musician. I work at a church. It's a big part of worship. Yeah. I mean, you use it to, to praise God. 100%. You know, it's a big deal. When yeah. I was on the phone with Mike uh, a couple days ago, kind of talking about this, he mentioned how he had heard you say that some asshole at your old church like, yeah. said that you're not supposed to take medicine because yep. it's, I mean. Yeah, I heard that yeah. in the other podcast. Yeah. Did you want to hit this fucking guy? I mean, I, uh, when he told me that story. Well, I, yeah, he's I, I, just like, foolish. Right. He is I mean, foolish. Just, yeah. and, that's, and I think he's probably, was probably dealing with some stuff too. Probably like, so. It's usually kind of how it works, you know. Yeah. Um, but what was his? Uh, what was he saying? He, he said that um, if you if you take medicine, you're not close enough to God. Right. You're not giving it over to God. You're not giving over your anxiety, and because the scriptures say, have things they say about it. But I mean, it's not. I don't think they're talk, addressing the medical situations. So, yeah. in well, let me let me share something with that. And I talked with Chris a little bit about this the yeah. other day. I've had two manic episodes where I was in church. Right. So. Yeah. I don't think that <laughs> what that gentleman was saying is accurate. No. Uh, now, had I been diligent on those two occasions about taking my medication, I don't think I would have had those uh, that's right. episodes. Well, that's the entire reason I found out my anxiety attack got so, my anxiety got so bad that I was working at a church and had to leave on a Sunday morning. Mm-hmm. And then my wife's like, "Hey, you need to ask your doctor." And yeah. and that's when I found out I had a social anxiety disorder general anxiety you know everything right so yeah i agree exactly it's it's ridiculous yeah and it really you know that sort of pisses me off because that's, well, so, that's a good sore for spot you. he's you just, uh is that your first curse word on the piss, podcast is that, a, is that well i mean it's kind of my mother would probably think yeah, it is right. yeah sure, sure. well that that man was uninformed yeah and I, i'll be the first to tell you that my own faith has been a huge key in my recovery if you will or my ability to uh, you know, move from an unhealthy place to a healthy place. I mean, right now, uh, when I'm in Florida, um, you know, every morning uh, I go to I go to mass there uh, at eight o'clock in the morning, and mm. I actually it, I actually go back to a church where I had a manic episode. Oh yeah, and it's just it's a part of my routine every day to make sure my mind is in a good place to battle not just my bipolar disorder but just everyday life. And then when I'm back in St. Louis. You know, I go to uh, a 745 mass uh, at Annunciata off of Clayton Road, and that's just part of my routine. Um, But uh, certainly when somebody says that, you know, uh, if you have to take medication, you're not close enough to God, well, that's just foolish. Yeah, exactly. And that's what I said. That's putting it politely. I'm like, dude, listen. You, if you, you wouldn't go to the hospital and get treatment for an, another illness you had. Exactly. You were saying that earlier yeah. too. So yeah. No, you said it. Great, great. point. It's ridiculous. Yeah. You know, with the with the faith stuff on my recovery and and you have it's all throughout your book. It's throughout the story you've told today with your friends and your family. That and then yeah, we're blessed. I was blessed. You're blessed with a great community around you, right? Oh, I'd be. I don't know. I'd be gone without right. my friend, my, without my support system. Gone. And and you also said this that you wake up every morning and you do two writing exercises, two mm-hmm. reading exercises, and then go to go to mass, right? Yep. Yeah. I mean, just to shed a little light on it. So I uh, yeah. I do. Um, I get up. I uh, 
I go actually outside the church down in Florida now, and they have some tables outside the church. I get there an hour before church, and I have a regular journal, just a regular notebook, and I write down you know, anything that's good or bad or that I'm thinking about, I just get it out on paper. There's no real consistency to it. It could go to a lot of different places. Mm-hmm. I write in that and then I write in a gratitude journal separately, separate journal. I write down maybe, oh, 18 to 20 things I'm grateful for. Uh, I write a little bit about clarity. I think clarity is mm, a big thing. Interesting, yeah. That's, uh, you know, writing, literally I'll write, I have clarity and it. it helps me every single day just kind of get that mindset before I start my day. So I do those two writing exercises and then uh, I have two books that I read. Um, they're usually uh, philosophy books or business philosophy books, or uh, kind of like a uh, you know a self help book. I've been reading a lot of this guy um, named Ryan Holiday. I don't know if you guys know who Ryan Holiday is. He's a uh, he's a philosophy writer that uh, he focuses a little bit on the Stoics, but he he really uses some great stories about either like past presidents of the United States or athletes or actors, and he shares these stories about you know trials and tribulations that they went through and how they were able to maneuver through them and get to a better place. So I love that. I I mean, I I believe um, a lot in feeding your mind positive things, whether it's listening to a podcast. Sure. uh, Whether it's um, listening to music or or writing, just feeding your mind. I can literally I know this sounds bizarre, but I can literally feel the difference in my mind and my body um, when I'm doing a lot of that. And then when I slack off and I don't, and I'm not doing it as much, like when I, it's harder yeah, to do, man. like when I travel, like for example, a couple of weeks ago, uh, I had a young professional golfer contact me and he wanted me to caddy for him in San Antonio, Texas. Okay. And I went and caddied for him, happy to help him out, young kid trying to make his way up the ladder. And I just, I brought all my journals and my reading stuff with me, but I just was because of the schedule each day and we right. had some rain delays. Like I didn't have as much time to work on that stuff. Uh-huh. Right. Mm-hmm. And it's funny when I got back to Florida and I started getting back into the routine, you know, I just, I just felt like way better. Mm. It's like just people don't realize how strong your mind is. And like when you feed it good things, like your outlook is just so much better. But when you are lazy and you don't feed it good things and Mm -hmm. you neglect your mind, you can go to some bad places. Yeah, man. It's crazy. So I write, I have a composition notebook. They gave me the first one in, in rehab. And um, to to journal to kind of right. take notes in the in the group sessions. It's a college rule, you know, the black and white marble composition book. Mm-hmm. I am actually getting some printed now with our uh, our logo That's and cool. Maybe a couple quotes or or whatnot. I, I don't know. I want one. I need a new you one. You got it. You got it. I have since I've been out. Um, I think we're at twelve hundred seventy three days since my last drink. I have nice. written in these books. I have a stack of them about four foot high now that I've written every day and I write down my daily task list. If I don't get it done, I just write it down the next day. I keep track of my sober days and I write out my day. And if I don't do it, I have to do it before I start. I mean, if I have a 6 a.m. flight, I get up in the morning or before I board that plane, I get my journal out and get Mm -hmm. my day started Mm -hmm. and I go to bed finishing it. And it's, um, it's the routine of doing that. So, so I do do the two daily writing exercise in the morning i do the journal and then i do a gratitude journal my wife has a 
an open journal on our um, I don't know what the fuck you call this piece of furniture. It's I hate it. Coffee but, table? No, right? <laughs> Not quite. <laughs> yeah, that's funny. It's no. It, it's uh, in the dining room. It's another just expensive piece of bullshit. But <laughs> the best thing on it, it's got the gratitude journal open, and we just number. And when you're feeling like it, you write something you're grateful down. And one word I haven't ever thought of, but I, I you just said it was clarity. Mm-hmm. And in this game, this mental health battle, having that clarity is fucking life-saving. I'm not being dramatic here, but because I think when you don't have the clarity of, of what your what your sickness is, it, it it can take you to the worst places. And then to being able to to get into a state of clarity that you're able to recognize that you don't fucking know it all, that you don't have it all, that God's there to fucking help you, your friends are there to help you, your your family's there to help you. And for those of you that don't have a community, reach out to us. We're, we're, we're here, man. We're wanting to help. It's, um, I, I, I know Mike has helped people I know personally when they were his age get through this shit uh, with, I'd say, a less bumpier of a road than he had to. And and to me, that's what your mission is. Uh, for, and that I don't mean to put that on you, but that's no, what it's, it's true. That's what your mission Th- that's, is. That's uh, that's accurate. I mean, I the way I look at why I did the book and why I started our foundation and our organization is because you know I I would have loved to have had kind of like a big brother when I was going through all this stuff, mm-hmm. I, but I just didn't know anybody that had it or wanted to talk about it and so i like i said earlier i had to learn everything on my own and so when i get introduced to younger people that have these these same bipolar challenges i said look i can give you the answers to the test if you're willing to take them Ah, i like that yeah and some people will right but it's weird man some people don't it's not that they don't listen it's they don't apply some of the things that I try to tell them. And I mean, I'm, I can't, I can't control everybody else, sure, but yeah. I, if I can give you the answers to this test, cause this test is complicated and mm-hmm. I, and it's never going to be completely perfect cause it's always going to have its tentacles popping out at right. times, but there are ways to make it easier to make your life easier to live with this thing. But, uh, it's, it's really unbelievable to watch some people get better that I've talked to and mm-hmm. keep in touch with and other people, you know, they just don't, but that's, you know, that's, uh, that's not something that's out of my control. And that's yeah. another thing when you have a addiction, mental illness, you know, only folk focus on the things that you can control. You can't control when somebody has a judgment of you right? or if someone says that you're not close enough to God, if you right. take <laughs> medicine, yeah. like yeah. you can't like, like that's kind of funny that he said that guy said that, but like that hurt his, that hurt. Yeah. Jeff that when was he terrible. Read yeah, that. yeah, man. True. But at the same time, you got to realize like, number one, he's uninformed, but that's what people say is out of, you know, out of your control. Yep. The only yeah. things you can control are what you do every single day to make sure you're healthy. I mean, I, I've got so many friends now that, they, they check in with me. They may live all over the country, and they'll be like, how are you? How's your health? Because uh-huh. they know my story. Yep. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, hey, thanks for checking in. Health is good. Working on some other things, you know. Uh, but that's the only thing you can control. You can't control what other people say, what other people think. Uh, but you can control what you do and, and the choices you make. And, and people need to realize that. I think a lot of people 
you know, struggle with what other people say or, or, or tell them um, because the other people out there, they have the know-it-all, mm-hmm. you know, um, philosophy, if you will. They, they have the, all the answers. Mm-hmm. Nobody really does. I, I, can't, I can't sober up every, every drunk, um, but yeah. I'm here to, if, you're, if, you're, if you want to step to the table, um, you, I think uh, in the front of your book, I took a screenshot of the, of the quote um, that you listed. It kind of goes on this. Um, wasn't it? Yeah. So it's only you can work on you. Nobody can force you. And if you aren't ready, then you aren't ready. And no amount of open-armed encouragement is going to change that. You have to decide to help yourself. It's your choice. And that was a quote from Dr. C. Robert Cloninger. Yeah, that's my doctor. Uh, Great, Mm. great wise man from uh, Wash U, who I was lucky to find in 2006, and I still work with him today. And really, yeah, with yeah, without that guy, yeah, he's just so smart. He's traveled the world talking about the science of well-being and very, very. gifted man that mm-hmm. has uh, shared a lot of insight with me on different te- uh, techniques and uh, you know medication information and uh, just advice on how to handle this because yep. he's studied bipolar for many many years so i don't um i always say this i say uh, when you said take control of con- the things you can control there's three things that i own that nobody can take from me and it's my faith my hope and my sobriety. I can give those fuckers away all day long, but nobody can come take it. You can take my body, soul. You can't take my soul. You take my right. body, my family. You know, shit can happen, yeah. right? People die of these tragedies, but those are mine to give away. Nobody can take them from me. And and your your wellness, your your health, your mental health is is yours to own and and go get help for it and you and you deserve it your your brain deserves it and um you're worth it for for those of you out there that are struggling um can you talk a little bit about your your foundation and and how if if somebody out there is is really struggling right now um what they can do as soon as they hear this if they have if they feel the urge to to get help i mean if anybody's struggling yeah, certainly um, don't be afraid to talk about it. You know, that was the biggest thing that I'll give my mom some credit here. My mom, from the moment I was diagnosed and when I came home from that first episode, she said, you know what, we're going to talk about this. We're not going to sweep it under the rug. We're not going to deny it. We're not going to turn our back on it. We're going to talk about it. So if you're not feeling well and you're out there and whether you have a mental illness, you have addiction, go talk to someone. It doesn't have to be a doctor. It can be a doctor, but it could just be someone you trust or a, a brother, a sister, a parent, uh, a spouse. You know, Just feel free to, uh, to open up and talk about it because talk therapy can happen with so many different people. It doesn't have to be a psychiatrist or a psychologist. You don't have to lay on somebody's couch to have a good you know, talking session. I've had uh, a lot of bartenders help me with my problems. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, and there, there really is something to talk therapy. I, I, I really I believe that it's something that can be used to benefit. I mean, everybody feels better. It might not even be a situation with mental illness or addiction. It could be like you're frustrated with your job. Or you're frustrated with your relationship or you're frustrated with your kid or whatever. You know, a lot of people um, need to realize that, you know, talk therapy is something that they need to embrace and use as a tool to help themselves. So go out there. And if, you, if you're not doing well, you're not feeling well, you're on the depressed side, 
uh, go and and make an effort to speak with somebody. And, and you know, you don't have to broadcast it to everybody. If you you, you don't have to be completely private about it either. But um, just don't be afraid to talk and 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 learn about what things you can do to feel better. What tools are out there? What what things that you know? I know that uh, there's a place up there at uh, McKnight in Manchester, the floating thing, buoyant float spa. Mm, yeah. I, that's a. I found that place last year. I, I thought that's right that where place, I live. That place was interesting. I thought it was very helpful and just another way to to try to do something different. You know, I know deep tissue massage is a good uh, technique uh-huh. to feel better and take some anxiety away. Like I said, cryotherapy a little bit earlier. So yeah. mm-hmm. there's a lot of different things, you know, you can just try. You got you to gotta be willing to do the research to find things to help you feel better. Because um, they're out there. They're out there. And the problem that people encounter, I think, is when you're depressed, it makes you a little bit lazy. And if you want to feel better, yeah. you've got to put a little work in. Sure. Yeah. Um, and as far as our foundation goes, you know, we, uh, you know, if you would have told me at, when I was 25 years old that I'd have a book and we'd be talking right. about having a foundation, we'd have these events. And, you know, we're, uh, we're partnering with uh, 590 uh, again on the Dotum. Yeah, yeah. Uh, which will, I believe will be at the end of May, and I think it's going to be... Will Lisa Ann be there? I believe so, God as far her. as I know. Um, I think we're going to do it at Gateway National. I don't think the dates have been confirmed, so I'll have to oh, find Jeff, all that kind of stuff Jeff, what a shit show, out. man. <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, it's a great event. I'm very grateful to... Uh, you know, Melissa Marr and uh, Timmy McKernan yep. and, and all the people from the station who uh, get us involved. This will be our third year with them. And um, we're, we're, we're making an effort right now uh, to partner with Project Wake Up. Do you know Project no, Wake I Up? No, I don't. Tell we got, we got to get uh, those guys in here with you. They're, uh, they're a great organization of young guys. They're probably 27, 28. Some of them went to Chaminade. Some of them went to DeSmet. They all went to Mizzou. They, uh, unfortunately, when they were at Mizzou, they had two friends take their own lives. Okay. And they started this organization called Project Wake Up. They had a documentary that they uh, came out with last summer that they viewed at the Chase uh, at the really? beginning of August that I, I went and saw. It was just incredible. Well done. Uh, yeah, they, they've done some amazing work. But we're, we're trying to partner with them on a really big golf event. It'll either be at the end of uh, August or maybe the first or second week of September. We're trying to figure out the date Here right locally? Now. Yeah, it's going right. to be at Forest Make Park. Make sure you let me know about that. I will. I will. i got a feeling yeah. I'm going to be coming back in here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah um, for sure. We- but... Yeah, so we're working on that, and I actually got a phone call today from uh, this wonderful group of people in New Orleans who uh, we've done we've done two events now for Birdies for Bipolar in New Orleans. We did a uh, an event with Jay Moore, the comedian, a couple yep, years yeah. ago, and we uh, did a golf event last spring, and we're going to do one uh, around Halloween this year. Uh, just ran into some some old college friends that uh, wanted to get involved. Uh, one of them had lost her sister to bipolar, and then another guy was a veteran. You know, a lot of our work is we do some good work with the veterans here in this area. Amen, man. God bless you. Yeah, I met this guy in New Orleans who's a veteran who um, wanted to get involved, and he's just been taking the bull by the horns, and he wants to host what will be our second golf event down there uh, come, like, right around Halloween. So, you know, we're uh, what we're doing is we're just – we're a funnel right now. We, we raise funds, and we put it into other – uh, mental health organizations that we feel are doing good quality work. Like we've given mm-hmm. a lot of money to that project wake up. That's awesome. Yeah. We, we've given some money to this, uh, Anthropedia foundation, which is a, a organization out of St. Louis. They're doing some really good work, uh, not just in St. Louis, but all over the country. And actually I think in Europe as well, uh, they're, they are, uh, really, um, getting in depth on the science of well being. They have these, uh, health centers called Palm health, uh, and they have cutting edge technology with uh, 
Himalayan salt rooms where you do meditation and they have the cryotherapy. Uh, they have, uh, just a bunch of different exercise uh, classes and uh, a bunch of different foods that they're focusing on. So we're just trying to find people that are doing good work that we kind of vet out and make sure that what they're doing is going to have a, a positive effect. And we just kind of funnel funds their way. That's awesome. You know, in the old camping adage that you leave the campsite better than you found it, Mike, you're, you're leaving the world better than you found mm. it. And this stuff, Mike Wellington didn't have a Mike Wellington when you were 23 or back in, <laughs> no. you know what I mean? And, yeah. and some of these kids that, that are you now, they have a guy like you that's, that's breaking walls down with this shit and offering a hand, uh, hand out to help and, and be a support system. And, and it creates a community and, <clears throat> Community, if you don't have one, you you can find one. You're not all alone. I promise you. That's what the the point of all this is. You're not. So, you know, reach out. Um, how if people are interested in, in in purchasing your book, where could they go? To it's, on it's on Amazon. Uh, Amazon. Birdies, bogeys, and bipolar disorder. And you know, frankly, that I always oh, I forgot to again. mention this yeah, at the beginning. That is one that of the, the coolest right things yeah. about the uh, about the book is David Faraday wrote the foreword and. Um, David Faraday, just so you know, you might not know this, he was on the cover recently of Bipolar Magazine. Really? Yeah. I and, laughed uh, three times in his page and a half. Yeah. <laughs> what, what I read in your book, too, and it might have been in the foreword with him, that, that, that suicide is a symptom of depression. True. And that's powerful stuff. Yeah. Um, wow. When you... And, and that is on a whole other topic. We, I would love to chat with these Project Wake Up guys. I think that's incredible work, and it's shattering that stigma. Um, and and what we often say with an addiction and and these things. Let's see, mutually exclusive, right? The opposite of that is. Correct me if I'm wrong. Is it mutually inclusive? Wouldn't that be the opposite? Yeah, I'm not so. a fucking brain surgeon, but <laughs> listen, there. They're all so often interlocked. The uh, mental oh, health yeah. and 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 alcoholism, addiction. Um, yeah, they're all weaved together in like mm-hmm. a nasty yeah. rug. Right. You know? So so this is the you know this isn't just a podcast on alcoholism or our addiction to opioids, and it's a podcast on shattering loneliness and. And, and it's mental health and mm. that we we can all do better for ourselves and we all deserve it man we're all worth it um mike having you on here has been a what my greatest pleasure of this podcast what a what a what well a, what i, I a appreciate day. you saying that it's been my pleasure and i uh, like i said i think that uh i think it might be back maybe not uh, too far down the road we're gonna i'm gonna look into some things that might help uh, this podcast bolster a little bit and well, we we'll see uh, yeah we'll see what we can get done i mean you never know but i mean what you're do what you guys are doing is uh is a great thing and i hope that uh you know the word starts to grow even more and you get the message out with uh you know any of these stories that you bring for people to hear because people need to understand that uh this kind of stuff is more common than anybody really realizes mm-hmm. it is it's yeah. and it and there is hope there's hope for all of us and um and that's the uh, that's the prayer, really, that that everybody can can find some hope and and some light uh, with these stories that that we share. And um, yeah, I'm I'm just so excited for this to drop uh, in a couple Mondays. So thanks so much for being here. Um, you know, Mike Mike is lives in Florida during the the cold months, huh? 
Yeah, you know, it all. I just got lucky because when I played golf right. uh, full time, I had to go somewhere warm, and I just fell in love with that area down there near where the Cardinals play spring training. And then, um, you know, I uh, I was actually last year I was kind of toying with making a comeback of playing, and then. This year, I kind of I got and I I didn't end up doing it, but uh, this year I got to the point where it was time for the winter, and I was like, I still got to get away. Yeah, yeah. Because to be honest with you, if you if you are in a position, and I, I'm not married, I don't have any children, so if you're in a position and you live with a mental illness, to be in uh, better weather and what I call more blue sky days, sure, that's mm-hmm. going to help your. I mean, bipolar disorder is a mood disorder, so by putting myself in a position to be. Uh, around more blue sky days that just has a, gives me a better chance to feel good every day so I, we've, we've heard florida often be called as like the treatment capital of the world there's good it's ones true. and really bad ones and um yeah uh my good buddy nick who came on uh a couple weeks ago who has owned and ran treatment centers down there now in, in new jersey and now he just opened one out in Dittmer, missouri called sauna lake um he went down there and and as an addict and then um, got clean down there and then has opened doors. So we have people actually reaching out from some recovery centers to, to chat. So we might even come down and see you sometime uh, if we can. I mean, but, you're more than welcome to. I'll be back here uh, by, you know, shit. the first or second week of, of April. Life. Right. But, <laughs> I'll go down but, there and miss But them. you don't want to go down there when it's, you know, when it's nice here. You we need to go, go down to New Orleans in sure. October. Okay. You we got a place can, to stay. You guys can and do you that. you got a driver. Yeah. Yeah, I'll come, drive come play in the around. tournament down there. Um, we'd love to have you guys I'll come I'll come down. watch you play golf. <laughs> uh, so, and before we let you go, we got to talk about, was it the U.S. Open last year that you caddied at? Uh, 2018. Was it 18? Uh, it, yeah. And I put, um, who was it that you caddied? I met you probably two days before he qualified. Uh, Chris Nagel, my That's good buddy. Right. Who's, yeah. uh, who's Put him in all my DraftKings lineups. He's a member at, uh, he's a member at Meadowbrook. He uh, made the cut, didn't he? Yeah, he made the That's cut. That's fucking badass. Yeah. Well, he's an incredible talent. I mean, I think, the, as the way I remember it, I met you on a Friday at the Dotem. Yeah, yeah. Uh, in 2018. And then on that Monday, he had U.S. Open sectional qualifying in Houston. And I knew that he was going to need a caddy. So I got down to Houston for that Monday. I got there on Sunday and I actually went out to the golf course and they wouldn't let me look at it. Really? Yeah. They had it closed. And so Chris was playing a tournament in Raleigh, North Carolina, and he flew in to Houston the night before that Sunday night before and never seen the golf course. And he shoots, it's a 36 hole day to get into the U S open. He shoots 30, he shoots 69 in the morning, which was very good without seeing it. And, but, but when we, we had lunch and he was like, you know, what do you think I need to do in the afternoon? And I said, well, you didn't play the par fives real good. And he's a long, really long hitter. And I said, well, if you play the par fives the way you normally do, you're going to shoot six or seven under, and we're going to have a real good chance. So he played the front nine of the second round. He was like two under, and I think he birdied like 12. And then he was kind of going along with pars and then it all kind of went bananas. He birdied, um, he birdied 14, he birdied 15, and then on the 16th green, he ended up making a bogey. But as we were walking to the 17th tee, there was a guy that had a phone. And I said, hey, can I see your phone real quick? I want to know where we stand because there's no scoreboards oh, in a qualifier, okay. right? Okay. And so this gentleman was like, uh, yeah, yeah, here you go, because he was looking at it. And I looked at it, and I saw you know, what we needed to make up three shots in two holes. You and, tell him? Well, I told him when we were going to the tee after I saw it, I said – do you want to know what you need to do, or do you just want to play? 
He goes, I want to know. I said, all right, well, you need a birdie 17, and you need an eagle 18. Eagle. 18 is a par 5. So he seventeen no is a par three. Yeah, he, he hits the he hits a shot in a seventeen to about twelve feet and makes it for birdie. And then on eighteen, he hits his tee shot into a fairway bunker and he's got two hundred and six yards, but it's all carry over water um, and there's water right of the green. And the whole location was kind of in the front middle of the green and he hits a six iron. That was just flush from 205 yards, and it's it starts off at the flag, but it starts it starts cutting towards the water, and I'm like, oh, please do not continue to cut. So, but it didn't. It flattened out, really, and it it landed on part of the green, and he had about a 40 foot putt. No he, way! And he made it for eagle. Holy shit! <laughs> so then that that didn't get him in directly. He had to go into a playoff. Really? So he goes into a playoff, a two-man-for-one-spot playoff with him and a kid that played at University, University of Oklahoma. This is just to get... This is to get into the U.S. To Open. To get into the U.S. Open. Wow. So they both hit it down the right side. It was, a, it was a different hole, but it was another par five. But this time there was water on the left side of the green. So they both hit it down the right side of the hole. I think we had like 225, and this kid had like 235. And the kid from Oklahoma hit it in the water. So then Chris looks at me and I said, he goes, we got to lay this up. I said, yeah, we got to lay it right. up. So, <laughs> so he, he chips like a little pitching wedge down the fairway and um, he, to like 80 or 90 yards. And uh, he ends up hitting his third shot in there to like eight feet and made it for birdie. And the other, the other guy made, I think, a bogey. So, so yeah, we, uh, we got into Shinnecock Hills. and uh, Shinnecock, that was it, yeah. It was, uh, yeah, and he made the cut and he played great. And he's a, number one, he's a great guy. He's a great dad. He's got three kids at home. And, Good for him, man. Yeah, and he's uh, just an uber-talented um, athlete. Came to the game late, didn't start playing golf until he was like 13 or 14 years old. Wow. And, okay. Uh, so yeah, that was a really amazing experience. You know, I mean, he beat he beat Rory McIlroy, he beat Tiger Woods, he beat Jason Day. Who, who won he, that tournament? Brooks it, Brooks Kepka. Kepka did. That yeah. was old when he went on his tear. Wasn't yeah, it? it was kind of it was was his, his second U.S. Open in a row. What was his overall score? Was it a, a because that people were shooting even that tournament, weren't they? Was it what was Chris's score or no, well, Kepka's? No, both, Kepka. Yeah. I think Kepka I won the tournament with like one over par. Over. Yeah, the golf course was impossible. Yeah, well, yeah, I mean, yeah. the cut was – Chris made the cut at pl- at six over. The cut was eight over. Wow. Yeah, but But seeing the golf course, it was so difficult. I, I mean, it was so firm, and, and you had to be so precise. And Was that where Phil did his uh... – Kept putting and then stopped it on the. Yeah, he lost we, his we mind, were, uh, man. We were actually pardon the pun. We, that's yeah. true. We were in the group ahead of him. Really? Yeah. So we didn't know that happened. That was on the thirteenth green, and we're we get to the sixteenth hole, which is a par five, and there was a guy from Fox in the sixteenth fairway. He was like he had like the boom mic and the all the stuff for the the sound of for Fox's telecast, and he looks at us because we had like a wait, and he goes, "Do you guys uh, you guys know, hear what happened to Mickelson?" And we we're like. Sir, we're in the middle of playing. How the fuck would we know? <laughs> Mickelson. And he goes, oh, this is going to be the biggest regret of his career. And so Nagel and I are talking. We're like, well, what do you, what do you think he did? Do you right. think he like, broke a club over his leg? Or did he, <laughs> did he push bones or yell happy bones Gilmore or stuff? And then we, found out, then we found out what he did. And we were kind of like, wow, that was interesting. Because <laughs> you know, people have this misconception that, that happened on the 13th green, and the whole loca- they, they keep saying the whole location was unfair. Well, there was a whole location that day on the 15th green that was unfair, but on the hole that Mickelson did that, Nagel did the same – he had the same putt, you know, in the group ahead, 
and he hit it three feet by, and then he tapped it in, right? Well, Mickelson, obviously, you saw, he hit oh it, and then he God. ran. And so I, I thought that was supremely Bush League. He'll, you know, Mickelson made it sound like it was a dig at the end, uh, at the uh, USGA, but um, no. I think if he was going to do that, he should have done that on the 15th hole where the whole location was unfair. They would have might have gotten a little more slack. Maybe. Okay. I mean, maybe. But, I mean, you look at that. The course was it was really difficult to begin with. It was really windy. I mean, a guy. I think Ricky Fowler shot eighty four that day. So right, you know, it was. It didn't matter who you were. It was just going to be very challenging. If I ever shot an eighty four at fucking Forest Park, I would go <laughs> make, be, a, make a trophy. Make a trophy of myself. Okay. Yeah. It was funny that was about. Fun. I got so me and my wife got married at the the clubhouse there at Forest Park Golf Course. We play. I play there every Tuesday during the summer for the St. Louis Electrical Board. Um, league we have out there and mm-hmm. i love it out there it's great but it was funny we went to a uh mother's day brunch at that at the clubhouse and there wasn't one fucking person on the golf course really it's, well at it's forest mother, park that's very rare on mother's day so think wow. about it on father's day you can't get on a golf <laughs> yeah, course, right. but on mother's day everybody's yeah. fucking you know kissing yeah. ass a little bit and yeah. watching the kids but um Man, I could we could go on for hours and, and talk golf. We'll have to do that sometime. I'll be back. I have some buddies uh that are that are that are golf nerds and, and I, I think the last time I was on a course was after the Dota and we were at a, a charity golf tournament over at Far Oaks. Um still not sure what the fuck they're doing with their greens, but um Far Oaks is uh you know, beats me up. But you guys you and your foursome won that tournament by like you guys are you know, a minus thirty I oh, I had a team of, that day. Yeah, yeah. Oh, okay, yeah. okay. You won. The, uh, it, yeah, it? I think. Yeah, it was Far Oaks, and um, where I once I saw who was in that, I was like, okay, we need to shoot for C flight here. There's nobody. Uh, <laughs> yeah, usually if somebody asked me to go play in a scramble, we usually have two or three, at least two or three good players. But you know, um, that's fucking unfair, man. <laughs> that's okay, man. No, but I mean, uh, I definitely like I said before we went on the air here today. I love what you guys are doing. I'm going to talk to some people in the treatment game and uh maybe we can do this even more regularly or, or sure. put something together because mm-hmm. what i think uh the content you guys are putting together is stuff that people regular people need to hear and need to know about and uh just keep doing what you're doing well thanks mike it's been an absolute honor yeah. and a pleasure and jeff and i are so grateful for you being here anytime thanks brother i want to um end with with one thing um i have a dear friend a mentor, uh, a woman that is, she's dying in the hospital right now. They actually just moved her to, to the nursing home. Um, 63, love her to death. Her her grandson um, has battled mental health the last three or four years, and he passed away at 21 um, a year ago. And his, his death, uh, Josh Jr., um, was one that she had a real heart, I mean, as a grandmother – watching her daughter you grieve your grandson's loss but then you try to be tough for your for your kid so i wanted to dedicate this episode to to kathy uh winkleman we, i love you kathy and um i know you'll be uh be upstairs soon laughing your ass off at all of us she always told me she want, i mean she's she's faced mortality very well years ago at the tavern she always said pond off when i pass away i want you to stand up at my funeral and tell everybody how many times I fired your ass from Fridays at the bar that she ran that I, I worked like her. for. Yeah, she <laughs> yeah, was a spitfire. I like her a lot. And she would fire me, and then what would happen was they couldn't find somebody to fi- uh, cover my shift. So she'd call me, like, you need, you need your ass needs to get here to cover your shift. We couldn't find somebody. So then they rehire me. I mean, it was a, there was times I was so drunk behind the bar that um, 
I started taking my clothes off and shit. It was uh, a sight to be seen. But I've done that in that book. It's okay. Yeah, all right. Well, uh, Kathy's not doing good, and, and I wanted to de- uh, dedicate this to her daughter. Uh, her daughters, Tia, Becky, and Christy, and her son, Chris. And, and Tia um, and Josh and, and little Josh, who's, who's upstairs waiting for, for Kathy to, to come home. So I love you guys, and, um, and we're going to keep on fighting for you guys. So um, hang in there, and we're praying so fucking hard for all of you. That'll do it, guys. Mike, thanks again, brother. Jeff, you're the man, and um, look forward to doing this again, bro. All right. Take care, guys. Let us pray. If you're struggling or know someone that is, please, please have them check out our podcast and reach out to Chris or me. We want to listen, and we're super eager to help. Pondoff's Anonymous is Chris Pondoff and produced by me, Jeff Allen. Our music is Antihero by McCall and Gentle Waters by Wild Wonder. For more information, visit pondoffsanonymous.com. Find us on Facebook and Instagram. 